You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is that's where we left off last week as we began our look at chapter 4 and continuing our trek through the entire book of Ephesians. And this has just been such an incredibly edifying uh, exercise and just time spent in God's Word. I know I've said that once already and I'm sure I'll say it again, but I have thoroughly enjoyed this look at the book of Ephesians as I hope it has been as edifying for you as it has been for me. Hopefully you grabbed an outline on your way in this morning and that will be our guide through God's word and the answers will be on the screen behind me. But uh, there can be no doubt, church, that we live in a world that overemphasizes diversity. And, and now diversity, as we'll see, is something to be celebrated as a gift from God. But the problem is that our society is so obsessed with the individual that they will overemphasize diversity to the point of denying reality for the sake of affirmation. Now, others are so obsessed that they would idolize themselves over everything else. But here's the thing. It's easy for us to identify some of the more egregious examples of this in our society and in our culture. And it's easy for us to single out them as the only perpetrators of such a sin as worshiping self because of how great we are. But whatever the other uh, more egregious issues may be, therein lies the danger that we all fall prey to the temptation of self-idolization. In a world that overemphasizes diversity to the point of disunity and self-worship and distorted realities, what we find in God's word is the perfect balance of diversity and unity. And what I hope we all walk away with this morning is a firm sense of identity and self-worth coming from our Creator while simultaneously being convicted of our own tendency for using our gifts and talents and abilities that God has created us with to either satisfy our own desires or to glorify ourselves rather than glorifying God. Because what we're going to see this morning is that for the church, for those whom God has called and saved and brought together and unified for his purposes, as we've seen throughout these last several weeks that Paul has espoused in Ephesians, that for the church, diversity of gifts does not have to come at the cost of disunity. Rather, Diversity of gifts is part of God's providential design for reflecting his glory and for his church, his people, to reflect his glory. So I'll ask you to stand as you are able one more time in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 6 is our text this morning. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. God, we pray once again. We ask your grace to be evident, to be made known to us this morning as we seek you through your word. I ask for grace that you would help me to boldly and with clarity declare the truths of your word. We ask for grace that you would help these truths fall fresh on our hearts and convict us in a fresh way, motivate us in a fresh way, and move us to repentance and obedience in a fresh way. That we may pursue your righteousness united together as your church. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So, Last week, real quick, just to kind of give us some context of of where we are and landing right there in the middle of a conjunction at the beginning of verse 7, right? So we started chapter 4 last week, and as we continue to remind ourselves, we made that turn. We finished up the first half of Ephesians, which is soaked and, and yet so compact with doctrine and sound teaching as to all that was all that God the Father accomplished in Christ the Son and is working in us through His Spirit from the foundation of the world. And we saw how sound doctrine moves our feet in eager obedience to the Word of God. And there we saw as we were encouraged by the, the words of, of verse 2 there of chapter 4 of, that we read there. That with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That the quality of our walk, that if we are to walk worthy of the calling, that the quality of our walk is directly determined by our lack of self-regard. Moving us then to see that eager obedience and an absence of self-regard then till the soil of our heart for the cultivation of unity. That as we continually regard ourselves less and we regard our brother and our sister more and we regard Christ first and foremost, then it allows us and creates the environment in which unity can be attained in a world that is so disunified. And we saw Finally, that unity is maintained through humble accountability, gentle rebuke, gracious patience, and loving toil. And then that provides a galvanizing peace. And so now this week we find ourselves right there in verse 7. I'll ask you to read it again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Now, there's a lot of things to break down in that one sentence, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time there just in that first sentence alone. Now, the first word we begin that sentence with is but. This is a conjunction. And so it indicates either a transitioning thought or it can communicate a conflicting ideal. So Paul transitions from the lifting up of unity that we thoroughly looked at last week. And he, he transitions from lifting up the unity of the church as a whole to now, as we're going to continue to see this morning, discussing the unique giftedness of every individual. So in the eyes and understanding of the world, these two things would be at odds with each other. To go from talking about the unity of the whole to then talking about the unique giftedness of each individual in the eyes of the world, that would mean that, that the unity of the individual is to take the cake, right? But we see this morning, as we will continue to read, that this is not the case in God's kingdom and for God's people. You see, the message of the world is, be you no matter the cost, even if it takes creating a new you. Don't let anyone take that away from you. Speak your truth. Identify however and whatever makes you happy. This is the message of the world. And in that message, the culture will mischaracterize religion and God's word as trying to take away a person's uniqueness and individuality and giftedness by trying to change or improve or what have you. But as we read here and as we'll continue to see, that's not the case at all. As Paul makes the case here that unity does not equate to uniformity. That as we are united in Christ, one church united under the head of Jesus Christ, that we have also been created by and given by God's grace great gifts of complete uniqueness in each and every one of us, that he has given us a unique set of skills and gifts and talents and abilities, all for the purpose, not of fulfilling our own desires or, or taking those things and using them to glorify ourselves or, or make a name for ourselves. But we've been given those unique gifts, talents, and abilities for the purpose, as we'll continue to see, of building one another up and for the purpose of glorifying God first and foremost. You see, the unity won for us and forged for us on the cross does not negate God's creative purpose and design in our lives. Rather, it enhances it. As those created in the image of God, our foremost purpose is to glorify Him with all that we are and all that we say and do. So in creating His church and so unifying us together, God brings together all the unique attributes talents, gifts, and abilities that he created us with for the purpose of those things enhancing one another, not drowning one another out, and for the purpose of those things building one another up to give him the greater glory, for the purpose of allowing our gifts to sharpen one another so that where you are gifted, I may be weak, and where someone else is gifted, you may be weak, so that as we all come together as his church, we're uniting all of those gifts, talents, and abilities that he's created us with and bringing to them together for God's glory. 
You see, church, we must realize that God has created each of us with unique gifts, talents, and abilities for his glory. And that is where the rub with the thinking of the culture and the world happens. Because as those created in the image of God and for the glory of God, we have been created with undeniable gifts that are intended to reflect his glory. And I know it sounds like I'm being awfully repetitive this morning, but that's intentional because we so often forget this. We think, oh, there's nothing that I can do in the church. There's nothing that I could do to serve at VBS or I don't have this talent or, or ability to fill this need in the church. Or on the other hand, we take that to the extreme that we think too highly of ourselves because of our gifts, talents, and abilities, whether they be athletic abilities, musical talents, incredible intellect, artistic nature, baking, hosting, the list could literally go on and on. When we consider all the multiplicity of gifts that God has created us with, it's staggering. And yet, at the same time, this also provides us with a sobering thought that of the countless who use these abilities to glorify themselves, to fill their own pockets with countless temporary treasures and satisfy whatever fleshly desires they may have, God created all of us in his image for his glory, and yet we would use those things to glorify ourselves. Turn to Romans chapter 12. I'll encourage you to turn there. Keep your finger there in Ephesians, obviously, because we still have much to look at there. But Romans chapter 12, we see this very idea of how God has created uniquely his church, each of us serving unique purposes within his church for his glory. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It's been often said that Ephesians is the Cliff Notes version of Romans. And uh, through this series, I've come to agree with that statement as it is so, uh, as Roman, where Romans expounds deeply on different things. Ephesians is somehow, uh, in, in Ephesians, Paul is somehow able to compact all of the same ideas uh, in just a more succinct way. Chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, and this is Paul saying in the context of the church and of unity, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So right there in the same idea of what Paul said there in Ephesians uh, 4 verse 7 of by the grace of Christ's gift, right? And now here we have by the measure of faith that God has assigned, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, that is many different parts, many different uh, assignments within our body, right? And the members do not all, the ha all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy, prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
So you see, church, our diversity is designed to deepen our humility, just like we saw last week, it begins with humility, and enhance our unity. That our diversity is designed to deepen our humility and enhance our unity. Now, what do I mean by that? That as we grow together and are unified together in Christ, and we begin to see the different gifts and talents and abilities within our our brothers and our sisters who sit next to us and behind us and in front of us, as we see those things realized in their lives and we begin to, to seek God humbly, thanking him for gifting us that brother or sister who can complement our weakness or who can lift us up and strengthen our strength. Our diversity is designed to deepen our humility and enhance our unity. Notice how Paul characterizes this gifting of grace as Christ's gift. So we're back in Ephesians now. He characterizes this gifting of grace as Christ's gift. Well, we read in Colossians 1.16 that all things were created by him, Jesus, and for him, Jesus. We know that as the second person of the Godhead, that he was present and active in creation. However, I don't think that Paul here is emphasizing by saying that this is the measure of Christ's gift, that he's emphasizing God's uh, action in creation. However, I think that this is Paul's emphasis here, that we get a better picture of that as we continue reading. So we're going to pick back up. In verse 8, pick back up in verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. See, Paul wants the church to understand that we need one another by Christ's design. Christ, as the sole head of his church, has designed the church so that as we are unified in him, our gifts complement, sharpen, and uplift one another, that the glory of God may be made known in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so what he's talking about here as this being a measure of Christ's gift, he's talking, he's referring to the work of Christ on the cross. And here's where we see that there is beginning in verse 8 where he cites Psalm 68. See, Paul has firmly established God's provision and providence in the giftedness of the saints. Going from last week, going from all the way from chapter 1 to here, he's firmly established God's provision and providence in the giftedness of the saints. Now, to show how this is consistent with how God has been working from creation and to show that this is consistent with God's character, he points to the Old Testament. In quoting Psalm 68. And I'll go ahead and encourage you to turn there. Psalm 68. Keep your finger in Ephesians. We're, we're coming right back. But he, in showing this, uh, I want to read some of Psalm 68 to us. Because when we read through it, we, when we read through Psalm 68, through the lens of Christ, it provides us with such a beautiful picture of God's providential provision. So Psalm 68 As Paul is interpreting this through the lens of Christ, we see in Psalm 68, starting in verse 1. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. 
As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. So this is in the context of God scattering the enemies before his people, making a way for his people, providing, equipping his people for everything necessary to accomplish what he has set forth as their purpose. And so this entire psalm is lifting up God as the provider for his people and is proclaiming God's faithfulness to make a way. As we see, as we read there, that he shall arise and he shall, his enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him shall flee before him. So he will stand with and be faithful to his people to make a way for them. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. We continue reading. Pick back up in verse 4. Sing to God. Sing praise, praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So see here how it's lifting up God as he is the one who is making a way. So therefore, we shall sing praises to his name. He, provide, he is father to those who are without a father. He is a protector of those who are widowed and lonely. He is, God who, he is the God who settles those without a home in a home. And he, then the psalmist continues, David continues to declare this in verse 7. Pick back up. Oh God, when you went out before your people. So declaring God's faithful actions in past, right? When you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai. Before God, the one of Israel. Rain in abundance, O oh God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O oh God, you provided for the needy. So, again, recounting God's actions for the children of Israel through the Exodus. Seeing that the Lord is provider for his people and seeing God's faithfulness from generation to generation. And we continue there in verse 11. The Lord gives the word. We move on to verse 15. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, so mountain of Bashan that was known for pagan worship by pagan peoples. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. So it's referring to God's giving his covenant word to his people through Moses, talking about the mountain where God's glory dwells and the mountain where those who worship false idols seek to worship their gods. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, so displaying God's strength, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. So this is the verse that, that Paul quotes to the Ephesians leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. 
And so the psalmist here, in talking about the faithfulness of God and the provision of God as provider for his people, refers and makes the middle of this psalm the moment where God provided his word and his ways to his people and made himself known. Well, Paul, you can turn now back to Ephesians. I know we've been back and forth, but stay, stay, stay with me. So Paul here is not pointing to this as a prediction of Christ, nor a direct reference to Christ. Rather, he's pointing to the parallel role which Christ took on by defeating sin and death and Satan. And so just as the Lord provided for his people, made a way for them through the wilderness, made their enemies flee before them, And took Moses up on the mountain to give him his word so that his people may know him and may live according to his ways. He's saying Christ parallels this moment in going to the cross and being lifted up on the cross on our our behalf. And then defeating death and sin by being elevated and ascending on high. So when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And whereas in the Psalms, it's referring to the captives being the children of Israel. Here, Paul is saying, now the host of captives that Christ has led as the true and better Moses is his church. And in doing so, he has given gifts. So that Christ's sacrifice and everything that he accomplished on the cross, he has given gifts to his church. He has equipped his church for the purpose of glorifying and lifting up his name. And we get this as we continue to read. Verse 9, back in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So in Paul's interpretation of Psalm 68, he points to the storyline of Christ, Because this, verses 9 and 10, Paul provides us his interpretation of quoting Psalm 68. And he points to the storyline of Christ. The incarnation, the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. So we see he points to the incarnation there with he who descended, right? He points to just the natural line that if he ascended, right, that he must have also descended. He who was on high from before the foundations descended. He condescended himself to take on the likeness of human flesh and being in the likeness of flesh, did not consider equality, though he was one with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so don't allow that part right there, that he who descended is the one that he descended into the lower regions of the earth there at the end of verse 9. Sorry. So notice the progression there. He points to the ascension of Christ in relation to Psalm 68, and the natural progression is that he must have descended. Now, don't let that phrase there at the end, that, that lower regions, trip you up. Because some will take that and, and twist it to mean something that it doesn't mean. That the emphasis here is not on the exact geographic location to which Christ descended. But Paul is, is merely communicating the wide expanse which Christ covered on our behalf. That he who was on high condescended himself to take on human flesh. To then go to the cross and take on our sin. And be crucified on behalf of our sin. 
so that we might have new life in him. And so doing was elevated on high. See, he's, commun he's communicating the emphasis here is on the depths that Christ went to, to secure our salvation. Namely, the grave. So in saying the lower regions, whether the earth or simply the earth, Paul is pointing to the death, burial, death and burial of Christ. And this is the mystery of the gospel church. That we who are so unworthy because of our broken sinfulness would receive the full benefit of Christ's work on the cross. You see, we are the epitome of the partner who's part of the group project and receives full credit for the work but who did nothing to contribute. Now, maybe some of you have been that partner or you've experienced being with that partner. But this is what we see, that we get full benefit of Christ's work by condescending himself to take on flesh, going to the cross, lowering himself to that point of death. And then his ascension, we also get benefit with that. That he might unite for himself a people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. That in our giftedness, we would give him the greater, greater glory. And yet we waste our time, our talents, and our treasures on things of little to no value. Temporary treasures that are but dirt when compared to the treasure that we have in Christ. We use the talents and the gifts and the abilities which God has given us to glorify ourselves, to feed our egos, and exchange eternal treasure for an endless pursuit of temporary pleasures. You see, the uniqueness with which we have been created and gifted is for the purpose of displaying the glory of God to all creation. Christ has gifted his church that we might live on mission for his glory. We see that there at the end of verse 10, that he might fill all things. And what was the original purpose and the mission of Adam and Eve? To fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. So literally, fill the earth with the image bearers of God that all creation may rejoice and give glory to its maker. That those in his image may be glad in him. And what was it that Jesus modeled for us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What was it Jesus commissioned his disciples to do? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So fill the nations with my disciples. What was it that we read in chapter 1 of Ephesians? Turn back there and just peek back there briefly. Chapter 1, we see that he worked in Christ, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand. So this is the very ascension that Paul's referring back to in Ephesians 4. Far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And that he, as Paul talks about in chapter 1, seated us with him there. 
so that we, as his church, might bring glory to his name by living on mission, reflecting his glory through the gifts that he has given us. And so we must ask ourselves, how am I using the gifts, the talents, and abilities which God has created me with? How am I using my gifts to serve his church? How am I using my giftedness, my knowledge, to make his name known, to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ? How am I using those things to reflect the glory of God? And then the more sobering question which we need to ask ourselves is how am I wasting those gifts on sinful pride and temporary pleasures? Because this is the purpose of the church, to be unified in Christ, to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and to build up one another the gifts which he has given us. And Jesus, as the head of this, his church, has structured his church in such a way so as to achieve this goal. We pick back up verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers so that they would do all the work and be in charge of everything and do all that I have commanded. No, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And what is the purpose? As, as those who Christ has placed in leadership of his church, therefore sharpen the gifts that he has given his saints. What is that supposed to produce? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what is the standard by which we are to judge our growth as his church? The standard which we are seeking is the righteousness of Christ. How do we attain that standard? How do we attain that level of righteousness? It's not by pursuing and using our gifts for our own glory. It's not by living lives of individuality, but by being united until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So here we see that the system which God has structured for these giftings to grow and flourish and strengthen one another, that he has created his church the church is the context in which our giftedness really meets its full potential. We could try to find the full potential of our giftedness on a stage or in our pocketbook, but that, are, that is endless temporary pursuits. The, where our giftedness, which we have been created with by the Creator, finds its full potential is by using those gifts within His church. And within his church, he has given us gifts by the work of Christ. And Christ, as the head of his church, has placed leaders in his church for the purpose of helping to cultivate those things. Not for the purpose of those leaders wielding some special power or building themselves up or lording it over everyone else. Not at all. That he has placed those leaders within his church for the express purpose of equipping his church for the work of ministry. 
See, God has providentially structured his church that we may be adequately equipped to glorify his name from generation to generation. Because from the beginning, we see that God equips those he calls. He makes a way for them to live according to and fulfill the promises which he has made known. And the deeper we grow into Christ, we are increasingly less satisfied in using our giftedness to serve ourselves. Rather, we, rather, we realize that the giftedness that he has given us is found, or the, the greatest version of that giftedness is found not in serving ourselves, but in serving him and living according to his ways. Because as sound doctrine moves our feet in eager obedience, our eager obedience leads us to then live missionally. And as we live missionally, we pour into others. That's, that's what it means to live missionally. And as they grow... And as we pour into the lives of others, whether they be our children, whether they be disciple-making relationships, as they grow in sound doctrine, they begin to live with eager obedience. And then that eager obedience moves them to live missionally. And then they pour into their children. And then they pour into more disciple-making relationships. I see this as we continue reading verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Remember, we keep telling ourselves that, that phrase, so that. It's just as important as when we see that word, therefore. So this is what it produces. This is what attaining to that measure of Christ, this, this is what it produces in us. It helps us to no longer be children that are taken captive by empty promises or by the ways of this world. Rather, we instead, speaking the truth in love, Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So that as we grow united, as our gifts are sharpened, we are continuing to grow into the righteousness which he has created us to live with. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, God has ordained that we walk the path of righteousness united. As we pursue righteousness, we pursue righteousness together. This is what we saw last week. As we live with humble accountability, as we exercise gentle rebuke to one another, all of that, as we bring our gifts together for the service of building one another in the bond of peace and to, to build one another, one another up in love, our goal, the measure of our walk is measured by are we attaining to Christ's likeness and are we doing so united? For his glory. So just to wrap up. Our unity. We see that our unity does not equate to uniformity. 
Rather, God has created each of us with unique gifts, talents, and abilities for his glory. And so our unique giftings are something to be celebrated, but not at the cost of worshiping the created over the creator. And because our diversity was providentially designed to deepen our humility and dependence on one another and enhance our unity. Our diversity was providentially designed to deepen our humility and dependence on one another and enhance our unity. So that as we live united in Christ, we grow in our understanding that he has gifted his church that we might live on mission for his glory. So that as we are building up the body of Christ from generation to generation and walking the path of righteousness, so that as we're building up the body of Christ from generation to generation, we're walking the path of righteousness united. And the challenge for us this morning, church, that I'll leave you with this, is how has God gifted us? What are these giftings by God's grace in which he has created us and given us these things in Christ that we may then attain to Christ's likeness, unified together? What are those giftings? And then the follow-up questions to that are, how am I using those things to glorify myself? And where do I need to begin to use those things to glorify God within the context of his church? so that I can build up my brother and my sister. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word as it convicts us and it moves us and it moves us to repentance. It moves us to encouragement. It moves us to obedience, to eager obedience. So may we leave here eager to obey the call that you have given us to use the giftedness and the uniqueness with which you have created each and every one of us for your glory. Lord, reveal to us how we have continuously disobeyed and tended to use that giftedness to glorify ourselves or to satisfy ourselves. Help us to repent of that and then say, how can I use these gifts which God has created me with to serve his glory within the context of his church so I can be unified together with my brothers and sisters and build one another up in love. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.